Welcome back to the Apostles Mailbox, where today's episode is an expert opinion on why you should hesitate to trust the experts. How do you like that? I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't listen to me today. Uh, perhaps not quite so much, but I do want to sort of shake the tree a little bit. There might be some things in there that need to fall out for your health. Uh, we've been studying through the book of John slowly but very surely, and as I've been doing my study this week, I've come upon a few things that I feel need to be uh, dressed for our best health. And so uh, we're going to talk about, uh, trust me, I don't know what I'm talking about. And how do you say, who ever said anything so absurd? And the answer is, of course, nobody. Uh, everybody who uh, claims to have something to teach is going to tell you they're an expert on it. Uh, we're in John chapter 2, and I'm going to be, I'm going to start in what you uh, will see in your Bible is listed as verse 23, but you'll notice here on the screen, uh, if you're watching the video here, I, I hid the verse numbers, and I did this on purpose. Um, you can see up here, I'm in John 2, 23 through 3.11 is what we're reading. Uh, the point is not to hide where I'm at, but the point is uh, that we might read this, this text as it was originally written, um, undivided, shall we say. So, uh, we read, Now when he, that is referring to Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. I'm just going to I'm going to highlight this real quick here. Uh, they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And I'm going to highlight this in a different color here. Okay. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Okay, so hopefully as I do a little creative highlighting here, um, You'll see why why I'm doing it this way. Okay. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus again said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, the conversation with Nicodemus goes on farther than that, and in some ways I hesitate to just stop there because we're we're missing half of the conversation if we stop there. Uh, but we're gonna have we're gonna run out of time if we try to cover it all today. Okay. 
But the first thing I wanted to illustrate to you, hopefully, which, which you've seen here, is that in your modern translations, when you have a chapter and a verse division, it makes it really easy to find a passage and to reference a passage, but often you'll end up with only half a statement. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's take our text here that we just read, and you'll notice that there's, a, there's some parallels going on here. So let's take a look back here then. We, we see that John tells us that uh, many people were believing in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. But, of course, Jesus didn't give himself over to them. He didn't entrust himself to them because he knew it was in a man. And I, I guess I suppose I can highlight this for you over here in the Greek if you read Greek. But if not, you'll just see it's the same word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, okay? And so John tells us, he ends up saying that God, Jesus knew it was in a man, and then it says, now there was a man from the Pharisees, and his name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, okay? So this guy comes by night and starts talking to Jesus, all right? So now if, you, if you're reading it like this, you might not see this connection if there's a break in here. In fact, uh, the first thing that Nicodemus says is he says, we know... Rabbi, that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what Nicodemus is saying is he's saying, we know what we know, what we believe about you is that you're from God. And why? Because we saw the signs, right? And that's what John just told us was happening, that people were seeing the signs and they're believing in Jesus. Uh, but Jesus doesn't trust them because he knows what's in a man. And now we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. All right. Do you make you make the connection fairly easy when there's no divisions? But let's see what happens if we if we put our verse references back in here. Okay. If we put our verse references back in here, we notice that this is John chapter three. And actually, um, it, even worse, perhaps. Uh, if if you in your Bible you probably have a section heading, so not only do you have a verse interrupting this, uh, not only do you have a chapter marker introducing this, but in an attempt to be helpful and help you find stuff more easily and to tell you what you're supposed to get from a passage, perhaps the translators of modern translations put these headings in. Okay, and so what happens? Uh, you, you're reading this and you think, oh, Jesus knows what's in a man. Well, that's what these three verses are about. Okay, there's a new heading. You must be born again. Okay, we're not talking about what's in a man anymore. But that's a wrong conclusion. Okay, John didn't write it that way. And he didn't mean you to like close the chapter on the last stuff and pitch it out of your mind and now focus on the new stuff. Because John is writing all of this together. And so what we have, unfortunately, when we're, when we're trying to read scripture, what we have, unfortunately, is all these like modern um, impositions upon the text that, that cause us not to read it as it was written. And that, as you might expect, can cause us to draw some weird conclusions, or at the very minimum, to miss things. I had never made this connection between men seeing signs and a man from the Pharisees who saw signs uh, before until I was going back and reading it again. And then I read a commentator and a commentator said, hey, look, it's, you know, chapter two just repeated in, in the beginning of chapter three. And I was like, ah, how, how did I miss that? Well, I tell you how I missed it. Uh, my Bible made me miss it. 
And so uh, it is helpful. You can actually buy a reader's Bible that doesn't have chapter and verse markings and, and headings in it, uh, which can be very, very helpful. Uh, but also, if you're, if you're looking online or if you have an app or something, very often you can just hide these things. And so then you can read the text um, in a less disjunctive way, okay, in a less divided up way. And so now that you've looked at this, of course, you know that uh, chapter two uh, is not ending when John tells us that men saw signs and Jesus knew it was in a man. And, and, and then he continues straight on to talk about a man in particular from the group of the Pharisees who says we know because of these signs, right? And that brings us to Nicodemus. And this is why I'm here to tell you not to trust the experts, or, or not, not entirely not to trust the experts, but to be very uh, cautious when you trust the experts. So here's Nicodemus. He's introduced us uh, to us as a man of the Pharisees uh, named uh, Nicodemus. He is a ruler of the Jews. Sorry. So he's of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were a were a very powerful and highly educated, uh, brilliant group of, of Jewish religious leaders. Uh, and Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the ruling council of 70. Um, that was in charge of, of basically the, the Jewish religious structure. So he's a very uh, sharp guy. He's very powerful. He's well-educated. And he knows his, uh, he most likely knows his Bible his Old Testament, backwards and forwards, inside and out, okay? So Jesus is going to start talking to him about heavenly things, about things that Nicodemus ought uh, theoretically to know, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. We saw this when we read it, right? And so Jesus, in verse 10, uh, says to him, look, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. Jesus is saying, you're the guy who's supposed to be trusted to teach Israel uh, about God, and you don't understand some of these basic things. Uh, how can that be? It's quite an indictment against Nicodemus. Actually, we're going we're gonna to find out how that can be uh, in just a minute. But I want to bring it back to the present day. Uh, so I've been going to a Sunday school class taught by a, a guy in our church uh, for a little while now. And uh, this guy is teaching out of a book written by a uh, cold case detective, J. Warner Wallace. Uh, I think it's, it's called like cold case Christianity. Okay. And so one of the things that he's been talking about is how, how we deal with the burden of proof, how we prove things. And there's been some good content in there, and there, there's been some challenging and some helpful content in there. But every, every single week that I've sat in that Sunday school class, I've heard the teacher, uh, usually just like reading a quote directly out of the book, say something where I know it's either false or it's grossly misstated, or it's being sort of uh, taken out of place in some way. So every single week I've been sort of biting my tongue because I don't want to argue. 
uh, argue and derail the whole Sunday school class. And there's there's good stuff there. And, and our teacher is a great guy, very friendly and, and doing a good job. Um, but I bring it up because every week some content that comes out of the book is repeated in class. And the reason it's repeated in class is because the teacher trusts the guy who wrote the book. And why is that? Because, well, this is a famous guy with a, with a book that's been published and a lot of people respect. And he's a guy with great credentials. And so he's trustworthy. Uh, but the guy's uh, the, the guy in the book writes things that are not exactly true, or, or they're get, they get misrepresented somewhere along the line. And I know this uh, because I went to seminary and I took a bunch of classes, and I also uh, do a lot of study, and, and some of the topics that he's dealing with are things that I have actually done a great deal of sort of in-depth study on this year in particular. And... and um, and so uh, what's happening is that even today, somebody, whether it's a pastor, whether it's an author, whether it's a seminary professor, whatever, somebody who, who knows more than you do, has more background, he says something, he states it like categorically, this is true, period, you have to believe this. Um, and, and, and the way he states it makes you think, oh, this guy is an expert and he really knows what he's talking about. And then we tend to like take those things and latch on them and then we repeat them to other people like as if they're unassailable truth. Uh, but the problem is, is that people are fallible and we, we all, I think, have a tendency there I go using the word all. Many of us have a tendency to overstate our case, right? To make something seem more definite than it really is. And that multiplies every time it happens. So the first guy says, well, this is probably the case. And the, le the, the, the next guy says, oh, well, I heard this is almost certainly the case. And then the, the next guy who hears that, he, he goes and he goes like, this is, this is definitely the case. And then finally somebody hears it from him and he repeats it and he says, this is incontrovertibly the case. You know, there's no other way of looking at this. And so I'll, even if the first guy was eh, fairly accurate in saying this is probably uh, the case, by the time it gets to number four, it's just grossly overstated. And this is a danger, and I'm going to explain why uh, as we get a little bit further. In terms of our text, though, Nicodemus's problem is that Nicodemus is lacking something absolutely necessary for understanding. And what is that? Well, Jesus said in verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus just launches straight into this conversation. Uh, Nicodemus comes to him with a question, and uh, it's possible that he's there at night because he doesn't want people to find out he's asking these questions, but it's also possible that he's there at night, uh, quite frankly, uh, because he wants some uninterrupted time with Jesus. And during the day, Jesus is pretty much swamped by crowds everywhere he goes, right? And, and every question becomes a confrontation in front of a crowd, and possible Nicodemus just wants some private uh, hash this out time with Jesus. And, and so Jesus says, uh, truly, you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, Nicodemus, you cannot understand the kingdom of which I am teaching. You cannot see it. You cannot comprehend it because you are not born of the Spirit. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 is going to say, 
things of the spirit are spiritually discerned. They have to be discerned in the spirit. And so uh, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to Nicodemus because he knows that Nicodemus is operating only out of the flesh, only out of this like human reasoning process. And Nicodemus is an expert in the Old Testament, but he is he is digested it and interpreted and systematized it according to human fleshly uh, perspectives. And so Jesus says, just straight off the bat, unless you are born again, you can't see it, right? And then that, of course, uh, causes another conversation, right? So Nicodemus doesn't get it. He says, how can you be born when you're old? He says, I... Uh, how, <laughs> if I have to be born again, or actually, literally, this means probably born from above, if I can be, if I got to be born again, how am I going to do that? I can't, I can't go be born again. And Jesus is, he uses this way of saying, you know, hey, pay attention here. Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so, uh, Jesus gives Nicodemus this statement that you have to be born of water in the Spirit. All right, now Nicodemus has already been born according to the flesh. We knew that. And so Jesus is saying you don't need a second of a second experience of the same type of birth. You don't have to go back into your mom and get born again. He's saying you need a different kind of birth. Right, And he explains that as he talks. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So Nicodemus, if you will, can check this box. Okay, I, I was born of the flesh. I'm flesh. And then he says, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay. So there's, I suppose, probably a thousand different ways to translate this statement about being war, born of the water in the spirit and the spirit. Um, one would be to talk about water birth as the natural, the physical birth, and spirit as the spiritual birth. But I don't think that's probably um, the case here, uh, because that would be like saying, like, if you're not alive, if you don't exist, then uh, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, duh. <laughs> so these are additional, this is an additional criteria. And so when Jesus is talking about being born of the water, I think he's talking about water baptism. And when he talks about being born of the Spirit, he's talking about uh, the, the baptism of the Spirit, the birth of the Spirit in someone. And so he says uh, to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Now, I want to bring you back to this theme that we've been talking about, uh, or which I've brought up a little bit, which is that of not understanding. Okay, so when all of this is happening, all right, as Jesus is, is preaching and traveling, and John is recording it in his gospel, there's this repeated theme. People just don't get it. They don't understand it. The Pharisees don't understand it. The people, they think they get it, but they don't understand it. The disciples themselves, they think they understand it. They don't understand it. John tells us again and again. Uh, then they got it later after Jesus was resurrected. And I think what's happening is that the reason the disciples aren't getting it is because they don't have yet the fullness of the Spirit. So they're seeing things, they're believing things, they're growing, but they don't. it doesn't yet fit. It doesn't make sense because in order to understand the spiritual things, you need to be born of the Spirit. 
and they have been baptized by in water, but they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so they can't put all of the pieces together, okay? So, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, hey, don't, don't be marveling that I said to you, you have to be born again. And then he gives a sort of cryptic statement, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And in some ways you would say, yeah, I used to read this and I would think, oh, so it is with the Spirit. It blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. But he didn't say that, actually. He says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying, the one who is born of the Spirit blows where it wishes, whatever that means. You hear its sound, that is, you're impacted by it. You don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. And I think this is part of the experience of living in step with the Spirit is that you go where God sends you. You don't always know where you're coming from or even where you're going, uh, but the Spirit at work in us does have this tremendous impact on us. And of course, as we saw before, Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And so he asked Jesus, how can this be? And Jesus explains to him um, that although he claims to be a teacher, <laughs> he doesn't understand this. He says, truly, Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And if you're reading very closely here, or maybe even not that closely, what you'll notice is that Jesus has just spoken in the first person plural, which means him and somebody else. And at this point in his ministry, perhaps, maybe or maybe not, his disciples are doing some teaching uh, but they don't seem to be in view here. Um, Jesus says, we speak of what we know. And the question is, who is the other people in the we? Right? We can actually ask this question back at the beginning, too. When Nicodemus taught, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do. And so Nicodemus, along with some other people, perhaps some other Pharisees, or perhaps he's lumping himself in with some sort of uh, everyday Jews, um, they're, they're, they're seeing some things, they're believing some things about Jesus, that he's from God, but they're not putting the pieces together. And Jesus then says that he, and someone else at least, is speaking of things that they know and, bear, and bearing witness to what we have seen. And I think what's, what that we is, I think it's, there's a good possibility that Jesus is talking about himself and John the Baptist. Because at this point in his ministry, we'll see later on in chapter 3, you have Jesus and John the Baptist are both baptizing. And that's the reason why I think when, when Jesus says you have to be born of the water and the Spirit, that he's talking about water baptism. Because at this point in his ministry, Jesus and his disciples are literally baptizing people in water as a sign of repentance. Okay, Jesus isn't pouring out the Spirit yet on them, but he is baptizing them in water. And John the Baptist was baptizing people in water. In the New Testament, all the way through, when we're told to come to Christ, we're told to repent and be baptized. And, we, and in fact, in, in Acts, there's one point where a bunch of Gentiles, they receive the Holy Spirit. They're baptized in the Spirit first. And then Peter commands them to be baptized in water. And so you always have this connection. Uh, once the Holy Spirit has been given, you see this connection between you're baptized in water and you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
right? You're baptized in water is the sign of repentance and of, of the death of the flesh and the, 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 the coming of new life. And you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, the receiving of the Holy Spirit in you who transforms you. And that's where I want to spend a little bit more of our time this morning is with this question uh, on what evidence do you believe? So, uh, in this in this Sunday school class that I've been a part of, uh, this cold case Christianity is going to a great extent to try to prove that the Gospels are reliable witnesses, right? That that we should believe that the Gospel witness in the Bible is true and reliable, and it hasn't been monkeyed with or, or, or distorted or whatever throughout the centuries. And so, J. Warner Wallace is attempting to prove to people that they can take every word of the Gospels as gospel truth, if you will, and therefore then they can believe in Jesus. And along the way, he makes these claims that may have some element of truth, whether small or big, and he tends to overemphasize them and to put too much weight upon them, and at times he just misrepresents some of his facts. And the reason for this, I think, and this is speculation, I could be so wrong, is I think that J. Warner Wallace is a fan of, of the way I used to live, uh, which was this. I was a member of the uh, Sunday School Club of I Stand Alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Did you ever sing that song, right? Uh, what, what we're saying basically is that um, we're not saying I stand alone, like there's nobody else who, who stands on the Word of God with me because uh, every, of course, you got a whole room full of little kids singing this song with their teacher and a whole church singing this. What we're saying is that the only thing I'm standing on is the Word of God, which we're told is the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible. So we have this big equals mark. The Word of God is the Bible, and the Bible is the Word of God, and there's no other, uh, there's no other Word of God, and, the, and, and the, the two are totally equivalent, and that's why we believe, only because it is written. But now a skeptic, somebody who doesn't already ascribe to the, to the faith, they might look at that and they would go, hold on. Wait, so you're telling me you believe all of this just because the Bible says so? And you say, yeah, absolutely. And they say, well, why did you arbitrarily pick the Bible instead of the Quran or the, or the Vedas or, or um, you know, like the Harry Potter series? Like, why did you arbitrarily pick the Bible? And you say, well, because the Bible's internally consistent and it's been, you know, passed on for 2,000 years with no transmission errors. And, 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 and then you just, like, bring out your whole list of all the reasons why the text of the Bible can't be trusted. Uh, but but here's, <laughs> here's the difficulty with that. Along the way, you're going to repeat some things that somebody taught you uh, in order to help you believe the Bible more. And, and what those people taught you uh, was often included some inaccurate or some false assertions. Okay, so somebody told you something like, uh, you know, I was told, well, of all, of all the places where the manuscripts could go one way or another, uh, they don't really have anything to do with major doctrinal issues. You know, it's the question of like, oh, well, were 45 people there or 50 people there? You know, and the manuscripts differ. It's no big deal. It's just a number. It doesn't have any effect. Uh, and then I, and the reality is like, uh, we saw this in in John chapter one uh, that that statement that the only that the one of a kind 
God is at the Father's breast, or the one-of-a-kind Son is at the Father's breast. And depending on which manuscripts you decide are authoritative, that's a very big difference in theological statement. You're either saying that uh, Jesus is the, a, a one-of-a-kind God, or you're saying that Jesus is a one-of-a-kind Son of God. Um, and, and so that that is a contested manuscript. And somebody who knows their stuff is going to hear you say, you know, well, it has nothing to do with real theological points. And they're going to say, actually, you're wrong. Let me take you to John 1.18 and let me show you that these manuscripts differ. And then if, you, if you're, you know, if you're a young kid, let's say you're in college and, the, and this is your professor up there and he's got 16 PhDs behind his name. Uh, his name's Bart Ehrman uh, and, and he's, he just wants to destroy your faith uh, or your faith in the word of God. Maybe Bart Ehrman doesn't really want to destroy your faith seems to, right? He's going to point out things that are true and that he can document and that he can verify. And not only that, but he's he's much more of an expert than you. And and he he can bring attacks to basically everything that you've been taught about the the reliability of of the Bible. And then at the end of the day, what are you going to do? You're going to be sitting there and you're going to go like Oh, I always believed these guys because they told me this in Sunday school or my pastor said it from the pulpit. And now I've got I've got arguments that I don't know what to do with. And now, now maybe the manuscripts aren't as reliable and now I can't trust them. But you've been taught your whole life that the only way to have faith is to believe that every last word of the Bible is as it was originally written and that there's nothing uh, that could be debated in there by anybody and so on and so forth. And so what happens then is your faith crumbles. This might not happen to you, but it happens all the time. You have you have kids who grow up in the church very, very confident about the, the, the absolute inerrancy and the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture because they've been taught all of the, the facts and the arguments, and they work against their friends in high school because their friends don't know what they're talking about. But they get up and they, they, they go to college and they get some actual, like, learned rebuttals to this thing, and, and they, they can't win that argument and so some of them will will just get really mad, you know, and say, well, you're a dumb heretic. You don't know what you're talking about, you know, and, and go back to their faith with sort of a chip on their shoulder. And other kids will be like, everything I believed was a lie. And then they just abandon their faith. Why? Because their faith was based on this, I stand alone in the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. But look at what Jesus says here in... in uh, in John 3, he says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I think part of what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, like, God is, when God gives you birth by the Spirit, something changes in you. You, you can't understand it. You can't systematize it. You can't map it out. But you can see the impact of it, right? You hear its sound, there's something going on in you, and you see the evidence of it. And so a brand new believer who comes to Christ, he doesn't come to Christ because, uh, well, some of them do, but most of them don't come to Christ because first they start believing that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and then they read the whole thing, and then they believe that it's there. 
Uh, some some people, you know, God uses that pathway for them. Uh, but but many other people, they 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 become desperate. Like their whole life falls apart. Uh, they're addicted to drugs. They their their family just all left them. Everything's imploding. Life's miserable. And, and they run into some guy on an airplane. He says, "Do you know that God loves you and that Jesus died for your sins and He will save you from your mess if you just call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ?" And they go, "Well, what do I have to lose?" And they call in the name of Jesus, and God comes in and <laughs> delivers them and transforms them. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand where it's going. But what they do know is they know the sound of the Spirit. They know that God has done this work in them, and life is literally birthed into them. And they don't, they don't stand alone on the B-I-B-L-E, right? They believed something that some random stranger told them in an airplane— but they believe it because when they went to put it into practice, it was verified as true as the living God came and met them. And in fact, this is what, um, and this is what uh, the Apostle Paul even preferred. He said this. He's talking to the Corinthians. He said, well, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul didn't lead with the inerrancy of the Old Testament. He said, I, I just made my goal. When I was with you, here's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know nothing except Jesus Christ crucified. He said, when I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And, and can I just circle that here? He says, I don't want your faith to rest on a guy's plausible argument. Because if you only believe, because you heard a good argument once, you can be argued out of that, right? But if your faith rests on an encounter with the living God, on the power of a living God who is active in your life, then whatever arguments come your way, you can roll with the punches a little bit. You can say, well, you know, maybe there's some bit of truth there, but I'm not too concerned. Why? Because when I was a drug addict and my life was a disaster and everything was gone and I called in the name of the living God, uh, he came and saved me and he transformed me and my addiction was broke like that. And everything and all the priorities in my life changed and all the things that I used to love and sort of started to disgust me. And so, yeah, I can't explain all of it, but I do know this. When I came to Jesus, my life was transformed. And that, to me, is evidence of a God at work. And that is an argument, right, that I think is a bit more durable to a professor standing in the, in the front of class who, who can do all he wants to tell you why you shouldn't trust the Bible or whatever. And he may make some points that are, that are uh, hard to, to hear, we're hard to rebut. Uh, but at the end of the day, if your faith is, is really a relationship with a living God, if it has uh, experiential quality to you, then the reliability of a word that was written in Greek 2,000 years ago and transmitted and maybe or maybe not translated perfectly awesomely into English, like that's not going to undo the fact that God has put his spirit in you. He's given you of himself. 
So I just want to come back to this. I want to say, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, your problem is not that you don't know the Bible well enough. He didn't say, Nicodemus, your problem is you didn't understand the Old Testament well enough. He says, Nicodemus, your problem is you're not born of the Spirit yet. And if you want to enter into the kingdom, if you want to understand the kingdom, you have to be born of the Spirit. That's where it's going to come from. That's where this life is going to come from. And you, meanwhile, you are the teacher. You're the expert. You're teaching all these Jews what to think about the Old Testament. You don't get it because you don't have the Spirit. And I think there is a spirit of the Pharisee in many of us. We like to have good arguments, right? And it's not bad to understand what's going on in Scripture and to understand doctrine. But you can't prove Jesus like a math equation. Some, some evangelists and apologists out there, they, they, they work really hard to do this. And I think that in some ways there's a lot of sleight of hand going. They might get people to, to pray a prayer or, or badger somebody into a corner and, you know, notch the win on their belt. And they, but when they haven't really made a convert, uh, they, they really just basically understood an argument as my pastor friend likes to say, what, what, how does that quote go? A man convinced against his will remains unconverted still. And so I think there's a, we want to like prove Jesus, prove the Bible, prove all these things with scientific precision and accuracy as if, you know, once people see enough proof, that's going to be enough. But here's the thing that we saw in John 3. Uh, Nicodemus saw and the people saw and they, they believed in Jesus for a time uh, but those people fell away when the crucifixion happened. And what happens is, even if truth can't be denied, even if somebody's saying we saw the signs, what happens? It still gets denied. You literally are going to see the Pharisees later on saying, well, this, uh, this <clears throat> Lazarus, he's walking around, he's not dead anymore, and this is a real problem for us because every time, uh, every time people see him, they, they remember that he used to be dead, and then Jesus brought him back to life, and so we need to make him dead again, right? So the Pharisees are looking at a resurrected person. It's undeniable truth, and they know it, and everybody knows it, and everybody believes it, and their solution is not to repent and believe in Christ, uh, but to, to get Lazarus dead again, uh, resurrected and re-deaded. Re what's, the, what's the word for that, right? So, uh, you can't prove Jesus like that. You receive him by faith. Now, faith is aligned with evidence of what we see, right? It's, it's not a total rejection of every fact or reality that we see. But faith ultimately says, I've heard enough, I've seen enough, I receive. And then when God's Spirit comes into us uh, and, and goes to work in us and we say, you know, faith is, is it's based not just alone on the Word of God, but also on the experience that we have of God's Spirit. And if you want more of that, you can just straight up ask for it. You know, I started by saying we shouldn't divide your Bible up into chunks, and now I'm going to send you after a little chunk. Uh, but in Luke chapter 11, there's a great passage where Jesus essentially says, um, ask the Father for more of the Spirit, and he'll give it to you. And so uh, I encourage you to read that, to do that, to ask for more of the Spirit. Why? Because when the Spirit comes in, he enables you to see and understand and enter the kingdom of God. One other thing you can do in response to this is you can nurture your faith. Okay, so uh, the the uh, the Christian faith is not about like learning content once you put it in your you know memory bank so you can pull the information out later. But it's really it's a it's a 
It's a relationship with the living God. And if you want to have a vibrant and a healthy and a strong relationship with the living God, you have to nurture that. What, how do we nurture that? Well, we nurture our relationship with God with worship in worship. Uh, we, of course, we have the scriptures. You should read them. There, there is great revelation of God and of his Christ in them. Uh, and we nurture our faith in fellowship with other believers. If you think you can be a Christian alone uh, and, and listen to the, you know, the greatest YouTube channels out there and get all of this Christian content, like that's not healthy for your soul need to experience God with people, um, find a local church, find a small group, find some, ask God to send you some Christian friends so that you can together encourage and build each other up and bless each other. And of course, we meet with God in prayer. When we do, we speak to him. He speaks to us if we'll listen. And so do all of these things to nurture your relationship with Christ. And then, and here's the final warning, as I would say, be very, very careful how much trust you put into church officials, right? And you say, well, I just made sure I picked the right church, the one with all of the perfect church officials. But my friends, there are no perfect people out there. And humans are very, very fallible, and even brilliant people uh, can be led astray. And even very uh, accomplished and winsome and godly Christians can get the hold of a wrong book uh, written by the wrong guy and assume that what's in there is true, and, and they also can lead you into some harmful beliefs. And throughout the centuries, uh, the church has officially taught things uh, that are wrong. Um, the, the Protestant Reformation basically is founded on this idea that you had a, a whole church structure uh, full of people who claimed to represent God, but were teaching things that were wrong and were not behaving in godly ways. Right? Every time, actually, a church splits, somebody is essentially saying, the experts on that side are wrong. And if there's 30,000 whatever denominations out there, uh, you should take this as a sign that universally people get stuff wrong. And if your answer to, well, why do we believe such and such a thing is nothing more than, well, somebody else who I really respected believed it, uh, perhaps that's a belief that you should hold a little less strongly. <laughs> you should be a little bit more willing for the Spirit of God and the Word of God to, to sort out in you, no matter how uncomfortable that can be. Whether the guy held the name of Pope, or whether the guy held the name of uh, Senior Pastor, or whether the guy held the name of, you know, President of the National Association of Evangelicals, or whether the the guy was the head of your denomination, that doesn't mean that he's right. Uh, and so be very, very, very careful um, with your doctrines and always be willing to say like, God, if you want to change my mind, your spirit dwells in me and I'm in your word regularly. You just show me where I'm wrong and help me to change my mind. And then because God is living and active and with you, he will do that. It can be scary, but it's also very good because on the other end, you're that much closer to knowing God as he really is and not as someone else misunderstood him. Mm -hmm.